Um, I invite you to turn with me this morning as we go back to our study of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes that we tend to think about sin when we see it in the rags and gutters of the world. But that's really not its essence, he says. To have a true understanding of sin, you have to look into religion. Some of what you might consider to be those who are unusually devout and devoted people. In fact, look at them when they're on their very knees with God. There, he says, even so, you'll find sin, self intruding in. And it's very true. If you want to know something about the real dangers and the real darkness of sin, it isn't found necessarily in the seedier places of the world. It's found sometimes at the very center of the heart of religion. Sin is found where people least expect it. Found, we might say, in some of our most pious and religious moments. In fact, That's where sin is often the safest because that's where people are least likely to be looking for it. In the middle of their religious life and their religious activities. But Jesus has a message for all those who would be so lulled into sleep. And it's given to us here in Matthew chapter 6. You could summarize it in a single word, beware. Beware of practicing your religion For the wrong reasons, beware of practicing your righteousness for the wrong reasons. Or as he says in verse 1 of chapter 6, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. This is uh, his challenge to us as followers of Christ and worshipers of God. He challenges us, just as he was challenging his listeners back then, to examine ourselves to see to ask why we're doing the things that we're doing. Are you doing it for the praise of others? Are you doing it for your own glory? Or are you doing it for the glory of God? This is really a little section that we've been looking at. We started looking at last week that I've called doing the right things for the right reasons. Or if you want to flip it around, you could say it's a warning about doing the wrong things for the wrong reasons. It's a, it's a section filled with, with Jesus' admonitions, His warnings about practicing our faith and our religious duties with impure motives, with sinful hearts, duplicitous hearts. And He's really giving us warnings that uh, in this particular situation are applied to the issue of giving the issue of prayer, the issue of fasting, but they could go beyond all of that. They could go to any religious duty that you do, your ministry, your teaching, your serving, your singing, all of those things we have, uh, have the potential to be at the end of the day, worthless in God's eyes, useless. Last week, we saw how he applied this to the issue of of giving or benevolence. This week, as we come to verses five and eight, he applies the same principle to the issue of prayer. Just like people who carry out the act of giving just so that they could be magnifying themselves and exalting themselves, so too with the issue of prayer, you can approach it in such a way as to magnify yourself, to seek glory for yourself. 
And this is what Jesus says in verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Jesus is exposing the same thing in the issue of prayer that He was exposing in the issue of giving, this sort of superficiality, this sort of prideful approach, or we might even say in terms of prayer, an indifferent or ritualistic approach to prayer. In all of these cases, He's defining for us what worthless prayer, what useless prayer looks like. And He defines it really uh, in three sort of principles or three uh, statements. The first in verse 5 is a warning against pretentious prayer when he tells us that we must not be like the hypocrites. You remember we talked about this last week, a hypocrite, uh, the word itself comes out of the theater. It referred to those people who wore these sort of uh, masks which exaggerated some characteristic of the, of the role or the character they were playing in a story. It it covered up who they truly were and brought attention to some sort of exaggerated feature. Jesus picked up this word, as far as we know, unlike anyone else, and applied it to those in religious circles who tend to fake their devotion, who tend to have a pretended faith and a pretended uh, religious life, a a pretended devotion, a pretended prayer life in this situation. And he applies it particularly to the scribes and Pharisees who he says loved to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they might be seen by others. The issue is not that they were praying in public. There are lots of healthy ways for people to pray in public. We do that here because Paul himself commanded it at at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 4 to give attention to prayers and to the public reading of Scripture. Jesus Himself prayed in front of His disciples and among crowds. He prayed even, we know, on the cross uh, in the midst of a crowd. In fact, when you look at the early church in the book of Acts, you see people gathering together for prayer publicly. We see the apostles praying publicly. And in the Old Testament, obviously, numerous examples of kings of judges, of priests and prophets praying and leading people in public prayer. So the issue is not praying in public per se. The issue is with their motive. They're praying in order to be seen by other people. They were praying for show, we might say, positioning themselves so that they would be noticed. And I'm sure if they weren't noticed, they'd make sure that they brought it up the next time they were in conversation, they would refer to their prayers so that people were sure to take notice, that they were, at least they wanted to position themselves as, especially devoted. This is the way they're described for us throughout Scripture. Jesus in Luke 11 talks about these 
Pharisees who devour widows' houses, but for appearance' sake make long prayers beforehand. In other words, there was no real commitment to to righteousness in their life. They weren't really seeking out what honored the Lord. In fact, many times they were doing things that were dishonorable, selfish, destructive to the lives of those around them. But they would preface that kind of a lifestyle with long prayers. It was all about making themselves look religious, look good. It was in the synagogue, he says. It was on the street corner in the marketplace. By implication, wherever they went, these guys were always about one task, which was convincing everyone of something which was exaggerated. Something wasn't really true. In other words, Jesus isn't saying that these guys loved to pray. They weren't all about prayer. They were about making themselves appear to love to pray. No doubt in the private moments, there was no evidence of a real love of prayer. What they really loved was to be seen by others. That was their primary purpose for praying, for worshiping, for offering their sacrifices, for going to the synagogue, almost everything they did. Matthew 23, verse 5, Jesus says, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. Giving, praying, fasting, singing. All of this was by definition done outwardly. Righteousness, he says in verse 1, doing their righteousness before men to be noticed. But for all of their public display, there was no private worship. No private dedication of their hearts and their minds to God. While they were eager to stand at the synagogue and pray, they were never eager, eager to kneel in their closet. Because what they did, they didn't do. To be seen by God, but be seen by others. And this defined them. This defined their spiritual life. This was the fundamental difference between them and a true disciple, a true believer. You remember this whole sermon was given for that reason because there were people who were even flocking to Jesus' ministry. There were people who were showing interest coming from miles away to hear Jesus and Jesus was trying to to differentiate for his disciples what it is to be a true disciple and what it is to be a false follower of Christ. And one of the things which defines a false follower is this sort of superficiality, this sort of uh, superficial pretense of religion, an ulterior motive that was always there. And by the way, it didn't die out in the first century and it didn't die out with the scribes and Pharisees. There are still people whose, whose main purpose in coming to church or main purpose in doing what they do, their purpose in prayer, their purpose in giving, their purpose in worship or whatever it might be is to be seen by others, to be noticed by others, to be thought of in a particular way by others. Jesus says here, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. There are others who might have heard their prayers or might have heard of their prayers. 
But God closes His ear to them because their prayers aren't really offered to God. That really isn't their audience. That really isn't their focus. And God, in that sense, is not interested in eavesdropping. Between your little game of religious hypocrisy and those that you're trying to impress. He's, he's not trying to pick up on those cues. Prayer that's truly heard by God is that which is offered to Him alone by a heart that is absorbed and consumed with God, consumed with His holiness, consumed with His will. The most effective prayers are the ones where the environment around you is really lost at the moment and your heart and your mind become fixed on things above. What you can see in verse 6 is Jesus makes a contrast and begins talking about a, a second sort of principle that helps us understand useful and useless prayers. He says in verse 6, or he speaks in verse 6 about the rewards of private prayer. The rewards of private prayer. We He says, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So you pray to your uh, your Father in private. You pray to Him in secret. And again, the idea is not that it's sinful to pray in public. We've already seen that Jesus Himself prayed in public. The idea is that God becomes the only audience of your prayer. Your this is, a, we might say, a prayer that is undistracted, unconcerned about the environment around you. It's not motivated by anything other than a desire to commune with God. So important. Prayer that is motivated by nothing else but a desire to commune with God. That's the essence of prayer to seek God. To seek God. And to seek Him alone. And anything and everything that detracts from that detracts from meaningful prayer. This is why in Mark one thirty five, Mark tells us that Jesus would regularly rise. He uses the present tense there. He would rise very early in the morning while it was still dark and depart and went out into desolate places, desert, deserted places, lonely places. And there he would pray. That's really the essence of prayer. It's seeking God to the extent that your time of prayer is really distracted by anything else or clouded by any other motive, then your prayer is polluted. And so Jesus recommends that you find a secret place and close the door against any and all disturbances and distractions. To paraphrase something that John Stott says, he says, just as nothing destroys prayer like side glances at human spectators, so nothing enriches prayer like a removal of all distractions, end quote. I'm not saying that it's inappropriate for us to pray in times when there are certain sort of activities around us. I mean, I pray sometimes when I'm behind the wheel driving my car. I'm dry, I pray sometimes when I'm walking down the street. I pray sometimes as I'm in a room full of crowded people. Those are not inappropriate. 
But the most meaningful and the most rich prayer are those times of prayer when you've removed all of those distractions and given your heart wholly and completely to the Lord. And Jesus' recommendation here about going into your room and closing the door is a little bit like his instruction about giving when he says we're not to let our right hand know what our left hand is doing. It's, you might say, sort of exaggerated or hyperbolic language. Uh, Just like with giving, we're to sort of not make any effort to let others know what we give. Well, in a similar way here, Jesus is saying that when you pray and go into your room and close your door, we know that's not always possible. You might, uh, for example, be married and living in a tiny little apartment. I remember when we, my wife and I were first married, we had just this little one-bedroom apartment and I had been accustomed to having times of Bible reading and prayer uh, with no one else really in the room, no one else in my, in my room or my apartment. And now suddenly I was having to uh, have times with the Lord with someone very close by. And yet uh, that's really not the issue. The issue isn't whether someone is there or whether you're completely alone. You might be in the military and sleeping in a bunkhouse. You might be just in need of prayer when you're in the office or somewhere in public. The idea is not that you can't pray in those situations. The idea is that you have to cut off to as much as you possibly can, to greater extent as you possibly can. You have to cut off the concern for all that which is taking place around you, for all those who might be watching. Eliminate all those ulterior motives and external distractions and give your heart completely to the Lord. Now obviously that becomes simpler the more isolated you are. And so as a practical matter, finding some isolated place facilitates that kind of prayer more than a, a crowded place. But we have to be honest Even in quiet places, there's no guarantee of undistracted prayer. We probably are the most distracted generation of people ever in the history of humanity. Technology invades everywhere we go. We hardly know how to live an undistracted life anymore. We're always glancing at our phone or checking our social media or hearing our notifications or looking at our text or our emails. It's already hard enough to live an undistracted life to, to, to then try to sort of carry out your religious life in, a, in that environment and add to it all the distractions of, of uh, people around you. It just, it just compounds the issue. But the point Jesus is trying to make is that meaningful prayer, faithful prayer, devoted prayer, genuine prayer, is that prayer which is offered to God and God alone and God with a whole heart. So in order to make prayer more effective, in order to make prayer pleasing to God, it must be with a concentrated focus on Him. A concern only for Him. And as I said, that is facilitated so many times in private places. Even when you're leading other people in prayer. Even when you're in your 
small group, your community group, your Bible study group. Even in those times when you pray, your focus should not be on those who are around you, but it should be on turning your heart sincerely to the Lord. Which, by the way, the more you practice in private, the more natural it is for you to sincerely focus your mind on the Lord when you're praying to Him in public. It's just part of of the sort of familiarity that you develop with the Lord. So, Jesus says, we go in, we shut everything else out, we concentrate our minds and our hearts on the Lord, and we pray to our Father, who, Jesus says, is there in secret. The emphasis is that while other people may not be seeing what you're doing, God is present there with you. You have a greater uh, awareness, or you should have a greater awareness of Him more than anything else around you. And even when you're there in secret, you should have a deep sense that He's there with you. And when you pray to your Father in that way, Jesus says, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He doesn't tell us how, just like back in verse 4, He didn't tell us how when He says that when you give in secret, your Father will reward you. He doesn't tell us how that reward in prayer will come here. Certainly not a guarantee that you're going to receive everything you ask for in prayer. But this is a promise that God responds God sees, God blesses this kind of prayer. And of course, many times we know it is through answered prayer. But there's also moments, there's also a work that the Lord does in molding your heart and your mind into the image of Christ, in deepening your faith, in strengthening your trust in Him. All of those things that He does in the secret councils of prayer. So regardless of how it is, Jesus wants you to know that this prayer is the kind of prayer that God responds to. He rewards you. He rewards you. No matter how you feel about those prayers, no matter how alone you might feel in those times, no matter whether you are feeling distant from God or not, we're told that when you are there in secret with God and your heart is devoted to doing nothing but praying to God, God sees that. He hears that. He's there with you in secret. And He's eager to reward your prayers. Now, Jesus doesn't end there because he knows that there are other pitfalls to prayer. And so he gives us another contrast in verse 7 and 8 where he speaks to us about the futility of perfunctory prayer. Perfunctory prayer or mechanical, sort of ritualistic, mindless prayer. He says in verse 7, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Here's contrast isn't with the self-righteous Pharisees, but with the Gentiles, or we might say the pagans, those who do not worship God, nevertheless they have prayers. They have religious devotion, they have religious life, they bow down to all of their various idols, they pray to their ancestors or whatever, and the sad thing is that even among those 
who have a correct view of God, even among those who claim to be Christians, they still have a pagan view of prayer. Their view of prayer, their method of prayer is really indistinguishable from that of pagans because they think that what makes their prayer effective is the heaping up of these phrases, meaningless, empty phrases. The Greek word is batalagia, batalagia, a kind of a word that basically means meaningless talk. It's just babble, batalagia, sort of piling up syllables. It's a word that, that sort of, the, it's, it's a pronunciation sounds like it's meaning. Onomatopoetic, poetic, they say. People in the ancient world did this just like people do today. They just babble out phrases with no meaning at all. They chant sounds over and over again, whether it's a Buddhist on his prayer wheel or someone praying through their rosary beads. And the point Jesus is making is that, that, that this, this is really these phrases, these meaningless phrases, is less about a cognitive exercise. It's less about a mental engagement. It's less about communion with God and more about ritual, more like some magical spell. But this is the way people think about prayer. They don't think about it as a mental engagement with the God of truth. They think about it as some sort of magical thing, some sort of mysterious spell that they're trying to elicit or trying to invoke. And you can find this among so many pagan religions around the world and throughout time, and you can find it with the village witch doctors in developing countries where they kind of mumble and jabber. You go to the Caribbean and you find the practitioners of voodoo, you find the very same thing. You hear it in the Buddhist temples and the Tai Chi groups. And sadly... You find it among charismatics, other, other Christian groups. In fact, one of the reasons that charismatic Christianity spreads so rapidly among developing nations and third world countries is because it synchronizes so easily with their traditional religions. In many cases, it has the same forms of practice, the same sort of sense of incantation that they're used to, the same calling on the spirits that they've always known, just with different labels, Christian labels, but the same form of religion. So Jesus is warning you, don't be like those pagans, don't be like those Gentile peoples who have no interest in really communing with God. God has no interest certainly in hearing your mindless babble. He doesn't need it. It does him no good and it does you no good. And he says there also in verse 7, don't be like the Gentiles who think that they'll be heard for their many words. That's not, by the way, a slam against long prayers. We're told at times that Jesus prayed all the way through the night particularly the night he chose his disciples. He prayed all the way through the night. It's not a warning about long prayers. It's a warning about mindless repetition of words. Again, some sort of magical view of prayer. People just piling up memorized phrases, just repeating the same things. A bunch of Hail Marys or, as I said, 
sort of counting off repeated prayers through their rosary beads. Whether it's some sort of stock prayer that you repeat over your meal or you start every day with or you say before you go out the door, before you go to bed at night. All that sort of meaningless repetition of words is useless. And particularly with the pagans, they would string together these phrases and repeat them over and over and over again. You hear it in the Scripture, for example, in Acts 19.34 where a mob had formed because of Paul's preaching of the gospel. And while he was trying to preach the gospel, Luke tells us in Acts 19.34 that all those in the city of Ephesus came together and crowded around him. And for about two hours, Luke tells us, they cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Uh, thinking that somehow they could cause their God to do something about Paul and these Christians invading their city just by repeating over and over again those phrases. Or in the Old Testament in 1 Kings 18.26 when Elijah was confronting the prophets of Baal challenging them to get their gods to rain down fire and burn up piles of wood that had been laid out and we're told that they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, O Baal, answer us. O Baal, answer us. Over and over and over again. It's kind of meaningless repetition of words has nothing to do with true communion with God. It'd be an insult to you for someone to try to communicate with you in that way and in the same way it is an offense to God. That kind of superficial prayer. Elijah mocks them, you remember. He says, cry aloud for your God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and has to be awakened. In other words, that kind of prayer exposes the low view that you have of your God. He's not a God who's rich in truth. He's not a God who's deep He's not a God who wants communion with His people. We have to realize that prayer in its essence is communion with God. It's not a ritual. It's not some sort of procedure that you practice and then go about your day and trying to unlock, as I said, some sort of magical spell. It's not what God wants. It's really nothing more than paganism masquerading as Christianity. What God wants is your fully engaged heart and mind. What He wants is for you to ponder Him, to commune with Him. And you don't do that through useless babble. You don't do that through just memorized phrases. He wants you building your relationship with Him. Deepening your relationship with Him. We can all sort of fall into those 
patterns, I guess, where we just repeat the same prayers day after day with the same words day after day to the point where we don't even engage really with God at all. It's not really an act of communion anymore. It's just a ritual for us. We're not really giving thought to who God is, to who it is that we're engaging with. We begin to think of God as some sort of impersonal force that we're trying to conjure up over our day. But that is offensive to God. Not to say that you don't repeat the same requests. It's not to say that you can't take the same sort of things to God over and over again. Even Paul himself says that he had a thorn in his side and he asked God repeatedly for the removal of that thorn. Jesus, you remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane went and prayed multiple times to God that the cup of that agonizing trip to the cross would pass from him. It's not a sin to ask God over and over again or to take things to God over and over again which are burdens to us. In fact, Jesus specifically encourages us not to give up during long seasons of waiting on God while we're repeatedly bringing concerns to Him. Over in Luke 18, you remember He tells a parable to the effect, He says, that men ought always to pray and not to lose heart. He says in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected men. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying repeatedly, give me justice against my adversary. And while he refused, afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear fear God nor respect men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice so she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice and speedily. He's comparing God to this completely corrupt judge who has no conscience, no compassion, no respect for justice at all for God or His law. But there's this widow who is literally pummeling Him, beating Him, He says, night and day with these requests, pounding Him with this unceasing sort of demand And this judge who has no conscience and no sort of internal principles, who easily ignores what is right and what is wrong, he cannot ignore the continual pleas of this widow. And Jesus says then, what do you think of your God who does love justice, who does love righteousness, who wants to see those kinds of things accomplished and done. Who cares for His people. Who bears our burdens. What do you think about Him? Do you think somehow that He will overlook all of His righteous principles? That He will somehow turn a cold, uh, sort of a cold ear to you? Of course He won't. God is anything but reluctant. He's eager, in fact, to see righteousness done. He's eager to see justice upheld. He's eager to answer and to relieve the burdens of His people. 
He will not delay long. That is to say, He won't delay your justice any longer than necessary. He may have things that He's accomplishing in you. He may have things that He's accomplishing through the trial. He might have things that He's doing through other people who are involved with your situation. There might be all kinds of things going on that you have no idea about, but God is not going to delay your justice any longer than is necessary. There are certainly times when we want to cease crying out to God because we think that God somehow forgets. We think about God with skepticism, begin to think that He's little more than this sort of unfeeling and unrighteous judge. That lack of resilience is really an affront to God. It's really an accusation against God. We can't be falling into the temptation to think that He's unmotivated or cares nothing or isn't offended by the unrighteousness that we ourselves are seeing. Jesus says at the end of that in Luke 18, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? So the idea is you have to have faith. You have to keep pressing and you have to keep praying and you have to keep pleading nothing wrong with that Jesus isn't opposed to repeated prayers and repeated requests but what he's talking about in Luke 6 is disengaged repetition mindless repetition repeating words without communion the issue isn't that we speak to God over and over and over again about our concerns, the issue is that we repeat words to Him without ever engaging Him, without ever really giving our hearts on a daily basis to the Lord. You'll notice in verse 8, Jesus explains why this is a problem, what, what this is really all about. Do not be like, He says, those Gentiles who pile up these thoughtless phrases, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Don't let your prayers become like the pagans. Why? Because your Father already knows what you need. This is why He's so fundamentally different than the idolatrous gods of the pagans who are really indifferent to the world beneath them. They really have to be cajoled. They really have to be persuaded. They really have to be bribed all the time to do something. God's not like that. He already knows everything that you're going through. He already knows everything that you're going to tell Him. He already knows everything that you're going to ask. Which I know might seem a little circular to you. If He already knows everything I'm going to ask or everything I'm going to say, then why bother saying it? Well, that's because the purpose of prayer is not to inform God. I mean, that's the obvious meaning of these words, right? The purpose of prayer is not to inform God. What is necessary is not for you to fill God's mind with your needs or inform God of your needs. The purpose is to fill your mind with His sufficiency. To inform your mind of His 
sufficiency. Martin Luther says, by our praying, we are instructing ourselves more than we are Him. In other words, the challenge is not to get God to listen to you. The challenge is for you to make yourself listen to yourself about God. About the things that you're saying about God. Jesus is saying disciples should pray to the Father, not to inform Him about their needs because He already knows. We pray in order to express what we believe about God. And that's what we need in our prayers. We need to be expressing who He is, what we believe about Him, and doing it in a way that deeply engages our heart. This is really what the whole next section of the Sermon on the Mount is all about. A prayer that Unfortunately, most people are unfamiliar with, not in terms of its rigid form, but in terms of its paradigm, a kind of prayer that is consumed with God, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, a prayer that is consumed with telling God who he is. And what he does and how faithful he is about it. You tell your wife that you love her every day, not because she necessarily needs the information, but you tell her to remind her that you haven't forgotten. You haven't forgotten your commitment, you haven't forgotten your love. It's not just a transfer of information, it's an act of communion. It's an act of relationship. We commune with God in prayer when we tell God of our trust, when we tell God of our hope, when we remind ourselves of who God is, when we tell of His attributes and wonder at His care for us. Not to remind Him, but to remind ourselves that we have not forgotten. Or I guess you might say to remind God that we've not forgotten. That our trust remains. See, Christianity is not all about rituals. It's not all about mechanics. It's not all about routines. It's not all about mouthing prayers and getting sort of some sort of bargain payback from God it's not it's not some sort of uh, uh, lottery machine you pay in enough coins and hopefully you cash out one day it's about a relationship you can offer up all those prayers and do all those acts but never really know the God of salvation in fact You might have offered up thousands of prayers to a God of your own making. Nothing more than an idolatrous God, a God like the pagans worship. Simply repeating the same words over and over and over again. You know, I've talked to people who say say that to me. I prayed all the time. I prayed all the time. I prayed all the time and God didn't do this. 
as if the repetition of the words was what God was after. When they never really gave their heart to God, that's what he wants. That's what he wants. It's not about you informing him of your needs. It's about you knowing him. The only real real prayer the Lord receives is the prayer from the humble, dependent sinner. The one who has come to the conclusion that there are no answers anywhere else except with God alone. And he understands his need and he understands God's sufficiency. And he comes to the Lord with that kind of demeanor, crying out, seeking the Lord. What you find when you come to the Lord in that way is is that He is sufficient. He is everything you need. And not only that, that He welcomes the sinner. The one who confesses their sin and cries out to God, He welcomes those kinds of people. When you give your heart to Him, your sins are forgiven because of the cross of Christ. Your communion with God is secured for eternity. Because of the forgiveness bought for you on the cross. And the care of God is unceasing over you because of the character of God. That's it. That's prayer. That's the kind of prayer that Jesus calls us to. The kind of prayer that is done for the right reason. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Just as you're standing, remind you, we have our visitor reception down the hallway to the right. If you're here with us for the first time, we'd love to see you. If you're here and you don't know Christ, you have never given your heart to God in that way that we've been talking about. Please come by and see us. Give us an opportunity to share with you how you can know and have communion with the Lord. Father, we're so grateful for this and so thankful for prayer. And yet we confess our neglect. We, we confess our deficiency in prayer so often. We turn away from its many benefits. We forfeit its grand design. Lord, forgive us for those things. Help us to never have that kind of cold and unfeeling approach to You. Help us to have prayer that is meaningful that isn't pagan that isn't offensive to you prayer that transforms our hearts prayer that reminds us and communicates to you that we have not forgotten the faithfulness of our God we pray these things in Christ's name Amen